We are in the middle of a conversation, in the middle of a series about eternity, okay? And so why would we talk about this? And, and maybe that's an easy answer for you. you you've grown up in church and um, you, know, you know the answer to this, and maybe you didn't grow up in church, and it is something uh, that's a question. How do we talk about something that you're not even sure exists, but for us, in terms of the church, in terms of what we believe, uh, we believe there's eternity in store for every one. And what we believe about that should really impact uh, some area of our life, some area of how uh, we live. And so uh, I will dive into the, the uh, scripture this morning that kind of combines the next few weeks together and, uh, and the, the bottom line of where we're going uh, with the series. So this is Paul's letter uh, to the church in Corinth. He's explaining to them, you know, the basic questions that everybody here even has. What happens when you die? right? We know that when this earthly tent we live in is taken down, it's his language, uh, that is when you die and leave this earthly body, we will have a house in heaven, an eternal body made for us by God himself, not by human hands. We grow weary in our present bodies. Amen? Can I hear a yes to that? Yes, right on? Okay. And we long to put on our heavenly bodies like new clothing, for we will put on heavenly bodies. We will not be spirits without bodies. Again, I said this last week, just baseline theology. You do not grow wings. You do not become an angel. You don't become a baby cherub with a harp, you know, all of a sudden. Okay. And, and, and the flip side goes too. You're not a wispy spirit. You're not going to come back and haunt anyone, including your spouse, just to let you know that. Like, that's not how this works. Okay. So there is, a, there is form that's going to happen after death. If you go down to verse 8, he continues on to say, yes, we are fully confident that we would rather be away from these earthly bodies. For those believers, he's saying, for then we will be home with the Lord. For we must all stand before Christ to be judged. He's talking about everybody now. He says, we will each receive whatever we deserve for the good or the evil that we have done in this earthly body. We are going to stand in judgment and we are going to receive something in terms of what we deserve as we see today in terms of how God's laid that out uh, for what we did with what we've been given in, in this life. So the bottom line for this series is really simple. It's that what you believe about eternity determines how you live today. So let me just go ahead and just say that out loud together. We're going to read it together as a church just to continually keep this as our bottom line uh, that we leave out of here. We know this statement regardless of anything else, okay? Let's read it together. What you believe about eternity determines how you live today. One more time. Let's read it together. Ready? Out loud. What you believe about eternity determines how you live today. If you believe that you just go back to the earth and it's all biology and you just worm food at that point, you know, um, then I understand. Carpe diem, right? Carpe the, the stinking diem. Like live for the day. This is all you got, right? If you believe that, that will affect you, right? If you believe there's actually an eternal destination, that will also and should also affect you and determine how you live today. So that's, that's what, we, what we believe about eternity. What we believe about what's next is going to determine how we live today. And so just from the scripture we read, Paul is taking them through the basics of what happens when you die. Right? Number one, our physical bodies do die. Everyone's going to die. Hebrews, the writer, author of the Hebrews says, everyone is destined for every man to die once, and then the judgment, which is why it says that our souls continue to live on. We, have, we are more than just physical bodies. Our souls continue to live on, and then it goes on to say, but all those souls will face 
judgment. And we don't have time to do all of the research together, so I did some of it for you. In Scripture, there are two judgments talked about in terms of what happens afterwards, what happens when you die. There's the great white throne judgment, which we're going to talk more about today. Um, that has to do primarily with non-believers, even though all of us are going to experience it. The judgment seat of Christ is what we talked about last week in terms of for believers. It's for those um, who would call themselves followers of Christ. And the judgment seat of Christ is a place of reward. It's a place in which you and I are rewarded for our life of faith. And that was the bottom line last week, because we, if you didn't hear it, you got to go back and listen to it. We talked about heaven. And heaven really is the reward for our life of faith. For those who are followers of Christ, heaven is the reward. Now, yes, in heaven, so to speak, you are going to be rewarded. That's what the judgment seat of Christ is. But heaven itself, eternity with God, is our reward. And there's crowns and all sorts of other things that are talked about. And again, I don't know how you were raised with this in terms of what you know, but um, there's a lot of language in there in terms of homes and I have a house for you. And again, you can go back last week and watch some of this. But um, that to me just kind of, again, goes back to we, we got to make sure it doesn't mix in our theology. You know, we are not saved by works, okay? That's not, I mean, everybody throughout all generations have tried to figure out how to get to God and how to make themselves right with God. And God, through his word and through the life of Jesus, helped us understand that it's not something we do. Paul said in Ephesians, we are, not, we are saved by grace and not of works, so we can't boast about it. There's nothing for us to claim in that. But we are, as the brother of James says, we are rewarded for a faith that produces works. We are rewarded for a genuine faith that actually motivates and, and we live our lives with actual activity, with actual works, with actual uh, things that we do for him, which is why we're going to be judged with what he did, what we did in our bodies, what we did while we were here. We're going to be judged based off of, you know, you know did you, what'd you do with, with the money you were given? What'd you do with the time you were given? What did you give with the opportunities you were given? Um, how did you, what was your motives, right? We talked a lot about this last week. What were your motives? Uh, what, how, was you, how did you speak to others? Like, it's all going to come out, right? And that's part of, again, how we are rewarded. Now, today, we're focusing the whole day on the other side of the coin, the more controversial of the two ideas in terms of what Scripture talks about in terms of eternal destinations. And for the purposes of today, I'm just going to use the umbrella term of hell, okay? That's, the, that's what we're talking about today. I, I'll give you the more details about that in a little bit, but I'm going to give you the umbrella term of just the word, maybe the common understanding of hell. Now, I don't know how you were raised. Okay? I don't know how the term and the idea of hell came to you. I can tell you about my story, right? I was a good Baptist little boy, you know, and when I was young, I went to my Baptist church, and to be honest, we were taught about hell a lot, okay? That was like the Sunday school teacher's go-to move, okay, was to make sure kids understood that you don't want to go to hell, do you? Think about how mad your parents would be if you showed up in hell. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, that just it's the go-to move, right? And just in terms of all the flannel boards had a little fire somewhere, you know, to help us understand. That's how I was raised. And just to be honest, just to give you a little bit of my story, um, it, was, it was a powerful image, and maybe it was wrong motivation sometimes in terms of fear, but um, because I struggled as a kid, as all people do, um, I struggled with my behavior, I struggled with my attitude, I struggled with my thoughts and my, my motives, and so I ended up having to get saved a lot as a kid. Does that make sense? So I would go to bed at night, and you know, Evangelism Explosion has made a, a career off of this in terms of asking the question, if you were to die tonight, 
do you know that you'd be going to heaven? And many nights I lied in bed going, I'm just not sure anymore, right? So I'd ask God to forgive me and I'd get saved again, right? It wasn't until I was about 11 years old that uh, I was at a camp and, you know, one more time threw my stick in the fire and, you know, all the Christian kids know what I'm talking about. Anyway, um, you know, rededicating my life and getting saved again. And a counselor really did spend the time kind of getting to the root of what was in me Help me try to understand about my security of salvation, and that it's not something I lose, and, and help me understand that the reason, I was, the reason I had a conscience and was bothered about the things I did and the, the things I thought and things really was more evidence that I was saved. It was an evidence that the Holy Spirit was in me. So he really kind of helped put together kind of the, the seal, if you will, of my understanding of salvation. But hell was a big part of the influence in terms of the fear that I was taught as a kid that kind of influenced that. So again, I don't know how you're raised. I don't know how you, everybody here is probably a little different. Maybe it was only an expletive in your home, right? Your parents or your, you know, your uncles or whatever, your brothers and sisters. It was only an expletive, you know, and, and I was, if you were Canadian, it was H-E double hockey sticks. I don't know if you get that uh, down here, but that was, for, that, was for me, that was me as well, right? And so uh, I would say to you, just to make it easy, we have to all start somewhere, okay? So I'm going to give you some statistics and then I want us to start with where the Bible starts in terms of this understanding. So this is a 2012 study from the Barner Group, and I just want to give this to you. It's the latest thing I found uh, in terms of solid statistics to give you. But in that time, 2012, just Americans, this is just a kind of a, a local study, it said that 74% of Americans actually believe that there is a hell, that there's a destination. Hell, hell's a real thing. That's a lot, right? 74% believe that there is a hell. Now, only 40% believe what the Christians would say, which is if you are not a believer, if you're not a Christian, then you're going to hell, right? So there's a little bit less. So more people believe that there is a hell, but it's probably just for really bad people, and that whole Christian church thing is not really true. That's, all, that's less than half. So only 40% really believe that. But interestingly enough, only half of 1% actually think they're going to hell, Right? <laughs> Only half of 1% actually think it's their destination, right? So you can see the, the differences in that. As I said last week, and I'll say it again, if I were the enemy of God's people, if I were the devil, speaking the native tongue of lying and deceiving, I believe I would make my number one strategy, not just for skeptics outside of the faith, but for those in the church, I believe one of my strategies would be to try to convince you that heaven is not something to be that excited about, and that heaven is really a default you know, destination for pretty much everybody. Now, we talked about that last week. But I would probably also try to convince you that hell doesn't exist, right? Or if it does, if it is there, if it does exist, it's probably not that bad. And this, I've heard in movies and other things, like, at least your friends will be there, right? I mean, that's, that's some of the common language around that, right? Like, it's probably not that bad. At least I won't be lonely kind of thing. But I want us to have a baseline and understand where we're starting off today as a church as we discuss this forward is what does that great white throne judgment look like when it comes to those in terms of hell? This is in Revelations when John uh, wrote down this revelation from God, seeing on the other side, he says, I saw a great white throne and the one sitting on it. The earth and sky fled from his presence, but they, had, they found no place to hide. I saw the dead, 
both great and small, standing before God's throne, and the books were opened, including the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. I'm going to pause it here just for a minute. I want you to understand that from, for, for John's audience, in terms of the Jewish people, there would have been incredible context to this language. We lose it a little bit in ourselves. The Jewish people were extraordinary about recording everything. Okay? They were so, that's one of the reasons the Old Testament is the longest standing, oldest literature that we have, because they were phenomenal at recording things. But even in the Jewish customs, from the time of the tabernacle on, when they came to actually bring their sacrifice to God, when they brought their sacrifice to the temple, whether it was a grain thing or you know, all sorts of different things they had to do, when they did that, their family's names were actually recorded in a book in terms of their action, in terms of, you know, you've sort of one more year, so to speak. Their names were written. And that's what they did. So, so and, and, and you'll see even Moses, has, Moses himself even said to God, they believed in a book that was only authored by God. They had their record, but they also had a God record. And so even Moses says, God, don't blot our names out of your book. The God is an author of a book as well, and they called that the book of life. So, you know, John, as he's saying this, they would have all understood it from their historical context. Like, oh, there are books written that have our deeds in them, and the book of life is also there and going to be opened. Keep going. The sea gave up its dead, and death and the grave gave up their dead, and all were judged according to their deeds. Then death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. This lake of fire is the second death. And anyone's, anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So again, I don't know where you come from today. I don't know where you start in terms of the, this conversation. But I will say that today we're going to move forward from a baseline understanding that according to what the Word of God says, that there is a destination, eternal destination. We're going to call it hell. I'll give you some details later, but we're going to call it hell. There is an eternal destination outside of heaven called hell that you and I need to have a good understanding of because I do believe it affects the way we live. Now, again, not just skeptics, but even in the church, I get lots of questions, and I've, and I've wrestled with my own questions in terms of when it comes to hell. And I'm just going to go ahead and let you know, whether you're a baby Christian or you've been walking this life for a long time, maybe you'll agree with me, like, at some point in your maturity, at some point in your following of Jesus and understanding God better, you're going to have questions about hell. You will. You're going to have questions. And I would say that the primary question, or at least, at least maybe the root of all those questions Come to this one thing I want to talk about for just a little bit before we get into some details. And this is the question. The root of all questions is, why? Why hell? Like, why does hell even exist? If God is a loving God, if God is a good God, if God is a God of mercy, if God is a God of grace, why hell? Like, why? That doesn't, at some point, you're going to have to wrestle with why it exists, not just the details of it, not just whether or not people use it to, to fear monger or whatever the case is. Like, like you're going to have to wrestle through. If it is real, if it is true, 
Why? Now, the, the answer to that is a complex, very long answer that we just don't have time to walk through every facet of this morning. But I do want to give you uh, I, I love the way Jesus teaches because Jesus always took the complexity of God and made it simple for us to understand and grasp and see. So I want to give you a visual this morning that I really do think helps us understand at least a baseline to answer the question, why? Why hell? Right? Why? And here's the bottom line. This is the, the best sentence I could come up with in terms of, of understanding. Because God will deal. He's going to deal righteously and justly with sin in all creation. Okay, that's the best sentence I can give you. Why does hell exist? Why is there such a thing? Why in the world would God even allow, if not in terms of create an opportunity for human beings, for people, family members, friends, to go eternally to a destination in which they are tormented and destroyed forever? Why? Well, because God is going to deal. He will deal righteously because he's holy and justly because he is a God of justice with sin in all of creation. And you know what all of creation means? Yeah, it's right. Good, good job, Matt. All of it, right? It means, it means everything that God created, the earth, everything on the earth, every being, angels who God's created. Everything God has created is going to be judged and dealt with according to how sin has touched it, according to how sin has affected it, which means everything, okay? Now, we struggle a little bit. We like justice, but we struggle with what comes with justice, which is judgment, all right, so I want to give you the reason why. Um, this is how we usually approach things. Um, this is how you and I usually approach justice, is that you and I, we see things that are, that are unjust, and we, wanna, and, we, and we sort of have this thing that rises up in us that says, that's not right, right? <laughs> like somebody should pay for that. We, we get the sense of, of, of something that's wrong in the world. We get the sense of, of something that shouldn't be happening. And maybe you have an opportunity directly or maybe it's through funding something that you, you want to see that right. And so you yourself have to somewhat judge, right? You have to judge what you feel like is wrong and then you give it a little bit of that, right? That's what it is. And maybe you have a specific thing that speaks to you. Maybe it's the kids in Peru that are suffering from, from, um, from sexual abuse and, and you want to serve at the shelter and give money to the shelter and you, you really feel like justice should be done. You want to help those lawyers and those psychologists make a difference in their life. Maybe for you it's local, like, like our bags of hope and the food insecurity. You don't think anybody should ever have to have a hungry belly. But that's part of it. Understand that we, you cannot have justice without judgment, Right? You cannot have justice without judgment. You have to even internally decide what you believe should be the case, what should be just, and when you find injustice, you know, you, that's what you do. Okay? It's water, by the way. Don't worry. Okay. <laughs> Laura's in the front. You, that's what we do with justice. Now, here's what's funny. We also do this with grace. Because, see, grace doesn't come without judgment either. Now, grace, we're a little bit more sparing with. Let's put it that way, right? 
Maybe we have family members, maybe we have friends, maybe we have people in our lives that, you know, you know, you really do believe or repentant and sorry, and you'll give them a little, little one of those, right? Maybe you feel like they've been sorry long enough and they've paid their dues and, you know, they deserve and they've earned a little bit of grace, and so you'll kind of give them a little bit of that, right? right? Now, what's funny about grace is that when it comes to your sin, when it comes to your failures, when it comes to the things that you mess up on, oh, it's all, oh, right here, right? That's how we treat grace. Oh, it's sparing for many others, but it's all over us. And justice is something we usually don't feel the need to find ourselves needing, but we often do it for others. Now, here's what you're going to realize at some point in your faith. At some point in your spiritual journey, regardless of how many times you pick up these cans, you're going to realize that you don't hold the cans, right? You don't hold either one. You don't get to control who gets grace because God's going to extend grace to people that you might not ever extend grace to. But God is also going to deal justly with everyone that he feels like he needs to deal justly with, whether you would do it or not. At some point, you're just going to have to resolve it. And I don't mean to be mean in this case, but just understand that God cares very little about your idea of what you would do if you were holding the cans. Okay? God doesn't really care how you would do it. He has told us how he's going to do it. He has told us how he's going to express grace, and he has told us how he's going to administer justice with sin in all creation. Paul says it this way to the church in Thessalonica. He says, he will, God will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When John, again, in Revelation, it, you know, God's revealing all of these things to him, John takes moments to describe what that everlasting destruction looks like, and the word he uses is torment. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of holy angels and the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. God has told us how he is going to deal righteously and justly with sin in all of creation. And hell is part of how he's doing that. Again, whether we like it or not, that's why it exists. That's why it's here. Because God does not function the way we function in terms of these things. Thank God he does not. Now, what is hell? I want to walk through through some details because I do think it's important to have some details in terms of what does Scripture say about it. And, it. and the problem is, is that a lot of times what hell, again, we're using the umbrella term of hell, it's referenced in several of Jesus' parables and several different ways. It's referenced with words that may not be the same word. So I just want to give you kind of the, the quick references so you can understand how it's described oftentimes in Scripture. So you have three different things. The first is Sheol, which is actually a Hebrew word. The, the Greek word for it is Hades, and we're going to read this passage, Luke 16, in a little bit, where it's actually used. But this is actually known as sort of the place of the dead, 
Other words for Sheol and other descriptions are outer darkness. And you might have heard something like that in terms of, of uh, isolation and outer darkness. And uh, this is also where you hear the phrase, the weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's, that's all part of what they call Sheol, or as we see it sometimes in the Greek translated to Hades in Greek and English. The other, the word you see for hell, oftentimes in the New Testament, actually is translated from a Greek word called Gehana. And the problem with this is something that always comes up in terms of people discussing hell, is that Gehana was a real place. It was an actual place that everybody knew. And it was outside of town. So in Jerusalem, usually on a, I think it was the south side or the side that kind of blew the wind, kind of downwind, if you will, right? It was on the south side. And it was, in terms of our intensive purposes, it was the city dump, okay? It was a place of a constant fire was smoldering and burning. And it's the place that the entire city, all of its dump would go to, all of its trash, all of its refuse, All the flesh from animals and sacrifices, dead criminals. Okay, this was where it would go. And so you would, you, they would have heard the word hell, and as again, many times the way Jesus described it, he would use words that applied to this place called Gehana. But he would say it in such a way that you're gonna be there forever. You're gonna be in the ultimate version of of this place that they knew. And because of the flesh and because of the animals and the dead criminals and all of that, there would be worms and maggots and all sorts of living things in there that could withstand the environment of the constant smoldering fire, which is why sometimes it talks about the fact that it's where the worms never die. Those are other phrases you'll hear in terms of hell. And then there's the lake of fire. Now, Again, you can read a little bit about the scholars. People, I love it when smart people disagree and they argue about things because, you know, it just makes me go, oh, that's fantastic. Nobody knows. No, I mean, it's just one of those things where smart people kind of walk through, well, is there a difference between Hades, between the, the way Jesus talked about Hades, the place of the dead? Is there a difference between that and hell? And is, and is the lake of fire hell or is hell death in the grave? And then, and then all of that gets thrown into the lake of fire I just want you to know this morning, I don't know, okay? I know that from the big perspective in terms of an eternal picture, regardless of what phrase you use, they all amount to the same thing, which is hell, which is an eternal destination apart from God, apart from God. You do not get to experience the presence of God. Now, you experience God because people that are in hell are experiencing his wrath and judgment for eternity, but they don't get the presence of God. So those are just some words and descriptions you'll see in the New Testament, especially in terms of what that place looks like. Now, I want to read a story, a parable, if you will, because Jesus wanted us to know. Jesus wanted, when he was teaching, he wanted people to understand the concept of heaven and hell. He wanted to talk, he talked about heaven all the time. And he talked about hell using these descriptions of outer darkness and the weeping and gnashing of teeth and Gehana. But this particular story he gives just to help everybody understand a big, big truth. So this is in Luke 16. If you want to turn there, I'll read this story for you. Many of you may have heard this when you were raised in church. Once there was a rich man, this is a parable, who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. But at his gate laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, and longing to eat whatever fell from the rich man's table. Again, just the scraps, the, the crumbs, if you will, the stuff the dogs ate. 
goes on to say, even the dogs came and licked his sores. And the time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, again, Sheol, this is Jesus using this word, in the place of the dead, where he was in torment, he looked up, talking about the rich man, and he saw Abraham far away and Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to, tip, uh, to dip the tip of his finger in water to cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received all the good things, while Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here and you're in agony. He goes, And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm. And it's been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone who can cross over from there to us. And he answered, then I beg you, Father, Father Abraham, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And this is Abraham's response. He said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Now, I will tell you, I really believe briefly Jesus is giving them this picture to help them understand for the future that even though Jesus is going to rise from the dead, doesn't mean people are going to believe, right? I mean, I don't know what the ascension of God looked like, but Matthew records it for us that Jesus ascended back to the Father, and it said, and some still doubted. I don't know how that happens, right? But this goes on, Jesus is giving them a little window, right? A little window that says, yeah, even if someone comes back from the dead, if they're not listening, to Moses and the prophets, they're not listening to what I already gave them. It's not going to convince them. And it will be the same for Jesus. I think the the bigger picture of this story, and I want to just walk through two things really quickly. The bigger picture of the story that Jesus tells for this reason is to help people understand where the rich man, you know, what was going on with the rich man, not necessarily with Lazarus. What was happening with the rich man? And, And here's the bottom line of the story. There will come a day where there's no more second chances. There will. There will come a day and come a time in which, just, in which judgment is fixed and justice is irrevocable. And at that point, it will be over. There will be nothing that anyone can do. And he, I mean, this is, I, I really do believe this is the sincerity of Jesus sharing this parable. It's like, guys, it's going to happen. Again, this is the way, whether you like it or not. This is, the, what I'm, this is how God did it. And there's coming a day when justice is going to be irrevocable. There's going to be no more second chances. And it won't matter what you knew. Did you notice that the, 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 the rich man was probably Jewish? He knew Father Abraham. Right? He was aware. 
He was probably aware of the scriptures. He probably was aware of Moses and the prophet. I mean, Jesus is saying this as if the guy already knew this, but it won't matter what you know. It will matter with what you did with what you know. One of the most sobering words and parts of scripture, for me anyway, from Jesus' mouth. You can read it in Matthew 7. He said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the ones who do the will of my Father who's in heaven. And to help it be crystal clear, he says, not everyone who says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And Jesus is going to tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me. I never knew you. I mean, this is a sobering passage. I don't know sometimes what to do with this passage. Other than go back to the fact that most of the time I picked up these cans because I think I have a better way of doing it than God does. And yet Jesus says, listen, you're going to have to come to the realization, okay, that there are going to be people, there are going to be murderers, there are going to be people who caused all sorts of injustice in their life, who did horrific things in their life, maybe even personally hurt you, who at some point give their life to him that are going to be in heaven because they actually experienced the salvation of Jesus. And there are going to be people in your family and in your friends and in your circle who knew all about God. There are going to be people who, who you know, never did really anything wrong as far as you were concerned. They tried to make the world a better place. They were good moral, good citizens, good folks, good God-fearing folks. But Jesus is going to have to say, yeah, but I don't know you. I never knew you. Because there was no surrender. There was, no, there was nothing you did with the information that you had. And there's going to be a day when there aren't any more second chances. Now, even with this, I want you to hear this loud and clear, okay? God does not want anyone in hell, okay? God doesn't want anyone to perish and to suffer. He doesn't want anyone to live in existence apart from him. So regardless of the scriptures that we know come from his sovereignty, that come from his omniscience, that come from his supremacy, where he says, I already know that wide is the gate to destruction and narrow is the gate to the, the, to the path of life. He already knows that's true, but it doesn't change the desire of his heart. He doesn't want people to go there. He wants people to accept him and surrender their life to him. I love this passage where Peter is trying to talk to the church, and Peter is trying to help him understand there's lots of people kind of mocking what's going on with, with the church, and there's lots of people sort of telling, telling the, the early Christians there that Jesus isn't coming back, and this is all a fantasy, and it's not working. And, and Peter replies to this and says, listen, the Lord isn't being slow about his promise, okay? As some people think, no, he is being patient for your sake, why? He does not want anyone to be destroyed, and he wants everyone to repent. Okay? That's why he's being, that's why he hasn't returned yet. 
Everybody with me? Nod your head. Okay. Yet Peter still in this moment says, but the day of the Lord will come unexpectedly like a thief. And the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise, and the very elements themselves, again, everything in all creation will disappear in fire, and the earth and everything on it will be found to deserve judgment. So even Peter is going, God does not want people to suffer. He does not want people to go to hell. But this is what exists, and this is what's going to happen, and you don't know when it's going to happen. You are not guaranteed a moment past today. You're not even guaranteed today. So, if what we believe determines how we'll live today, what is it supposed to do? And I want to give you two quick things but as we close, but I'm telling you, this is what we're going to spend the next couple of weeks on. Guys, when you, when you don't fall for the deceiver that heaven is the default and it's not that great and you don't need to get excited about heaven and hell doesn't really exist or it's not going to be nearly as bad as what Scripture clearly tells us it is, then you live your life kind of purposeless and with no urgency. But when heaven really is the reward for a life of faith, and hell is going to be the place in which God righteously and justly deals with all sin in all creation, then I believe it should infuse in us purpose to share the good news of Jesus with everyone. Okay, your top five, we talk about here as a church, your top five is part of our vision as a church, that we are the transformed people of God, pointing everyone, wanting to see all of our friends' lives changed by absolute hope. But it's just a place to start. We're called to share the good news. We're called to share the amazing love that Jesus has for every single one of you. That's our purpose. There is no greater purpose than our great purpose in our lives. And with that comes urgency, right? The, the James, the brother of Jesus, tells us that our lives in light of eternity is a vapor. It's a mist, right? It's, it's here and then gone in light of eternity. So you only have one. Are you going to make it count? Like, are you going to make it count? If you understand and clearly see heaven, if you understand and clearly see hell, and you know that everyone is going to spend eternity somewhere, it should create in you a sense of urgency. What am I doing with the life I've been given? What am I doing with everything I've been given? I need to make it count for something. And not the way the world tells us to, you know, attain and to, to achieve and to succeed and try to carpe the diem, right? Like, just, just get it all for us and this is all that matters. No, we know that eternity is what matters. We know our purpose. So how am I going to live this moment right now and make it count? For eternity. That's how it should be determining how you and I live our lives every single day. And that's what we're going to spend the next few weeks on. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you so much for your word. God, it's so incredibly clear 
that we work fairly hard to make it muddy. We work really hard to try to find the loopholes, to find the, the, the ways around what you so clearly have told us. God, I believe that heaven is our reward and I believe that hell exists because you, you must righteously and justly deal with sin. And so God, I pray that you would continue to infuse my life and the people here's lives with purpose to share all about you to live in such a way that we have the urgency in us that this life that is a vapor really we would use every day and every moment to make it count for eternity and if you'll just keep your head bowed and I'll do what I did last week and this is just because of the nature of our conversation but I just want to share with you not from a sense of fear. Please don't hear this coming from a, a place of fear. But if you do not know where you are going to spend eternity, then I would just challenge you this morning, make the decision now. Don't wait another moment to surrender your life to Christ. To make this right now the moment in which you say, I want to accept the free gift not fr it's free to you. It wasn't free to him, but free gift of salvation. And if that's you, I want you to raise your hand. I want to pray with you this morning. I want to lift you up in prayer. If that's you, boldly lift your hand. I want you to, I want to be able to pray with you. I see your hand. Thank you so much. I want to pray with you. I want you to pray in your heart with me in this moment. And I see your hands. Thank you. Praise God that you have made the decision right now. Would you guys just pray with me in your hearts as we pray as a church together? Father God, I believe you are the Son of God who paid the price for my sin on the cross. And you rose from the dead in order to give me victory, to give me freedom. And just in your heart, say these words, I surrender my life to you. I surrender my life to you. Father God, as a church, as a body, as a family, I pray that we would surround these folks and just encourage these folks on their journey as they've taken this step. And they know now their eternity does not need to be something that's cloudy and not, not, not something that they know for sure, but that right now, God, that they for sure know that heaven is going to be a reward for their life of faith. That hell will not be something they have to personally deal with but God, I do pray that in this moment you infuse in them purpose and urgency as to why it is you've called us together as your people, the church, to do the work that matters for eternity. Thank you, God, so much for those that have made this decision this morning. We pray as a church that you will continue to just move us in the direction you've called us to. In your name, Jesus, amen.